much for that. That was wonderful. What a blessing. Uh, all three of those instruments being played for uh, the glory of God. We were able to purchase a couple of two, couple of two, two new music stands this week uh, to make sure we had enough to uh, have uh, a stand for each of the instruments. So we're thankful uh, for God's provisions there. But that was, that was a blessing. Wonderful, wonderful uh, trio there. John chapter 19. John chapter 19. Been blessed already with the music and being able to sing to the glory of God and sing of the love of our Savior and His greatness and His goodness. And we'll look again in John 19 at perspectives of the cross. Perspectives of the cross. Uh, we looked last week at several perspectives. Uh, we were back in chapter 19 looking at the perspective of the soldiers, uh, from among the soldiers, a centurion who got saved. The soldiers had divided up, as there was the custom, those who would execute the, the one who was on the cross, they would divide up their clothing, their garments. Uh, there were uh, four or five parts there. They uh, took four parts and divided it up, and then they basically gambled for Christ's tunic. But out of that, in spite of those soldiers and their animosity and their carelessness and their rebellion, we see a centurion who got saved, gloriously saved. We saw a religious man, we saw Simon of Cyrene, a religious man who probably was not a saved man, coming to the Passover and then being compelled to carry the cross of Christ. And no doubt Simon got saved. He realized the guilt of his own sin as he's carrying that cross. His son Rufus, from what we understand, he gets saved and he becomes a part of the church at Rome and is mentioned in Romans 16. We even made mention of the sign above Jesus' head in three different languages that speaks to the universal invitation of the gospel, whosoever will, the onlookers. And then we began to look at the perspectives of the women who were there that day. Four we believe there are four who are, who are named here uh, in John chapter 19. And we began looking last week, first of all, at the mother of Jesus. The mother of Jesus. We go back in John 19 to verse number 25. And we see, they said therefore among themselves, let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, they parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots, these things, therefore, the soldiers did, even in fulfillment of prophecy. But verse 25, actually, I was in verse 24. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleophas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus, therefore, saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her, unto his own home. We made mention of, of Mary at the end of last uh, Sunday morning's message. Mary, the, the mother of Jesus, the mother of his humanity, not the mother of God. Jesus is not here venerating Mary. She was not a perpetual virgin. She had other children. They would eventually, several of them, uh, get saved after the resurrection. They were not believers at this time. Part of the reason why Jesus did not give uh, her care to his siblings, his half-siblings, uh, 
was because they weren't saved at this time. But also as the firstborn, it was his responsibility to make sure his mother was cared for. But she was a sinner like you and me. She refers to herself as one in need of the Savior and refers to herself as a handmaiden. She understood her need for salvation through the Messiah, Jesus Christ, whom she had given birth to. But nevertheless, she had to submit to him as her Savior and Lord. And Jesus, in his compassion and his care, he made sure that she was properly cared for. And John, the beloved disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved, as he is not named by name in his own gospel, we see his humility. He refers to himself as the disciple whom he loved, whom Jesus loved. He is given care of Mary. He even Jesus even refers to her in verse 26, showing that distance. Though he is caring for her as the firstborn son, we see that word woman mentioned there. And that is a term of respect. That is not woman. That is ma'am. That is a respectful way in which he is addressing his mother, but it's also showing the distance. No doubt, as she reflected upon the day in watching her own son go to the cross, tortured, unjustly murdered, she thought of that statement by Simeon back in Luke 2 and verse 35, where Simeon said that a sword would pierce her own soul also. Mary knew Though it was hard for her to comprehend, she knew that her son, Jesus Christ, had to die for the sins of the world and for her own sins. So we see here the perspective of Mary. But then we also go down a little bit further in this passage, as we were just reading in verse 25, and his mother's sister, Mary. Now, we understand probably there were four women who are named here. Why would there be Mary and then another sister by the name of Mary? So we are going to divide up, and we're going to refer to Mary, that's Jesus' mother, and his mother's sister. And then we're going to separate into a third individual, Mary the wife of Cleophas, and then a fourth individual, Mary Magdalene. We can even see that in Matthew chapter 27, in verses 56 and 57, in the parallel account of the crucifixion of Jesus. Matthew chapter 27, and dropping down to verse 56. Actually, looking at verse 55, and many women were there. So there were other women who were there. Again, a testimony to the, the biblical, to the Christianity, to, to biblical Christianity, and the fact that Biblical Christianity is not chauvinistic, is not misogynist, as this culture tries to portray the Bible and biblical Christianity to be. Verse 55, many women were there, beholding afar off, which followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering unto him. Verse 56, among which was Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's children. So there's three, but we also know that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there. So I believe that there are four women specifically named here in this passage. We just looked at the perspective of Mary, the mother of Jesus. We spent some time also on her perspective last week, but now let's mention, at least briefly, this Mary, the mother of James and John. So 
This is likely Salome. Mark 15 in verse 40 identifies her as Salome or Salome. If we think of Mary, the mother of James and John, we would think of her as the mother of the sons of Zebedee, also known as the sons of thunder. At one time, in Matthew chapter 20, she is, along with her sons and the disciples, they are arguing about who is going to be at the right hand of Jesus next to his throne in his kingdom. Now, isn't that, again, without being too critical of a mom, of a mother, a mom wants to thank the very best of her children. And that's just natural. That's just normal. And I've met some mama bears through the, in the ministry and as a principal of a, of a school. And there were some mama bears that had very rose-colored pictures of their little babies. And uh, one of them would, in particular, come to her son's defense at every turn. No matter how guilty her son was, no matter how much evidence we could stack against him, he was always innocent. He never did anything wrong in his entire life. And I found myself thinking, I wish I had children like that, because my kids, they don't behave perfectly all the time. I wasn't a perfect child, but somehow, some way, she had raised a perfect child. He never did anything wrong, and especially not at school. So it's natural and normal for a mother to think the best of her children. And again, nothing wrong with that, but we got to be careful as parents that we don't go too far we have, to re, we have to believe that our children, like us, are sinners. They come out of the womb speaking lies. They need the truth. They need to come to the awareness of their sinfulness. And we have as a responsibility as parents to help them in understanding their need for the Savior. And if they never do anything wrong, why would they ever need a Savior? Why would they ever consider themselves a sinner in need of Jesus Christ? Well, here is Mary, the mother of James and John, and her sons are influential men. They're sons of thunder. Remember, they're ready to bring down fire and brimstone on those who don't teach and preach just like them, right? They are men who have a zeal for the Lord, and she raised them in such a way to give her credit and her husband, though he's unnamed, give them credit. They raised two young men who were strong, who believed strongly in what they valued and what they believed. And now as disciples of Christ, they are wanting to go forth with great zeal and to take out all those who are not doing it exactly the way they're doing it or who are not preaching the truth. And give them credit and give her credit where credit is due and their zeal and their love for the Lord and their passion for serving and for preaching and for proclaiming the gospel. John would be faithful to the very end, even as a martyr, going out to the island of Patmos and eventually dying probably there as a martyr. But they got a little carried away that day in their pride and their mom came and they were arguing as to who was going to be at the right hand of Jesus' throne, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Pride got involved. 
But even as John and his brother James were rebuked that day, and as the mom, their mom was rebuked that day, they learned, she learned, she accepted the truth, she trusted Christ and remained faithful and a follower of Jesus and was there at the cross observing. And sometimes we get rebuked along the way, don't we? Sometimes we get a piece of humble pie. Sometimes we have to be confronted. And it's not fun. It's not easy. I don't like confrontation, but it's part of the ministry. It's part of what God has called me to do. It's part of my responsibility as a parent. And confrontation can be hard, but we learn from it. And sometimes, even when there's 95% false, we still have to learn from the 5% that is true. And I give James and John, I give their mom credit because they remained faithful. They took a rebuke and they didn't say, oh, you're just legalistic preacher. Oh, you, whatever excuse that you hear today, not going to that church. I'm not going to church. I'm not going to read my Bible. It's a bunch of hypocrites, a bunch of legalists, a bunch of this, a bunch of that. That wasn't their attitude at all. They took a rebuke, they took some correction, and they remained faithful. They got over it. We don't get over much in our culture today. We're super sensitive about every little thing, it seems like. Everybody's got to cry to their mom. I'm sorry, I don't mean to offend anybody, but we've got to cry to our mamas and got to have safe rooms. Got to have teddy bears and chocolates now on college campuses because somebody might say something that would disagree with their line of thinking. And now there's even violent threats for those who disagree with certain perverted behaviors and lifestyles. But they got over their rebuke. They got over their correction. They remained faithful. They accepted what was true. They accepted the correction. They accepted the rebuke. And they continued as disciples of Christ. And the mom is there Observing Jesus on the cross. And she is one of those women who was faithful even down to the very end. And was ministering, as we just read in Matthew 27 and verse 55, was ministering to Jesus even there in those last days. And then there's another Mary, the wife of Cleophas. We don't know much about her except that she was the mother of James, the younger, and Joseph. That's from Matthew 27 and verse 56 that we just read. But then we also see a fourth Mary, and this is Mary Magdalene, Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene is uh, an interesting individual, misunderstood, misrepresented. We know from Luke 8 and verse 2, Mark 16 and verse number 9, that Jesus had delivered her from demons. She had been possessed by a demon or demons, I should say. So she had very serious spiritual issues in her past. And Jesus had delivered her from those demons. She was Mary Magdalene because she was from the village of Magdala on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, about two to three miles north of Tiberias. She is mentioned in all four Gospels appearing quite prominently 
quite visibly at Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. As a matter of fact, she had a very visible role in the resurrection account. She was the first to see Jesus after his resurrection. She loved Jesus much because she had been saved from much. And again, I can't help but think of the application. We've all been saved from much. We've all been delivered from much. No matter if we got saved early in life or later in life, no matter if we got saved from a very sinful lifestyle or not, we all have been saved by the mercy and the grace of God, those who have come to Christ in saving faith and repentance. We all should have that great, that great deep love that we just sang about the Savior's love for us. And in the words of that song, there's the reflection of how great love we should have for the Savior, for the great love wherewith he loved us. We love him because he first loved us. But Mary Magdalene, she had a deep, sincere love for the Savior because he had delivered her from demons. She never got over her salvation. It was rich and it was a great motivating part of her life all the way down to those days where she is at the tomb wanting to be there and Jesus gives her the opportunity to be the first one to see him after his resurrection. What a privilege. Mary Magdalene, again, much misunderstood. Even mythology about Mary Magdalene that has to be corrected that I must mention here this morning. There is a form, there is a false teaching out there. It's, it's called Gnosticism. There's a form of Gnosticism that is still in our culture today. Okay, I don't want to get too carried away here, but Gnosticism basically taught that the, the soul, the spirit of man, the invisible part of man was good, but the material, the physical the body of man was bad. So there's a denial of the deity of Christ. There's the denial of Christ dying on the cross in a substitutionary, vicarious way. There is the denial of the virgin birth of Christ. As a matter of fact, one of the lies, one of the Gnostic heresies, is that Mary Magdalene married Jesus and produced children by him. And several years ago, there was a blasphemous book by the name of the Da Vinci Code that popularized, once again, this blasphemous lie regarding Jesus and Mary Magdalene. Gnostics had actually written two books that claimed to be written by Mary Magdalene. And obviously, they were apocryphal. They were not included in the canon, being false, not even being historically accurate. But nevertheless, the Gnostics, in trying to promote their false teaching, there were two books, the Gospel of Mary, and then there was another one, I forget the title, the Gospel of, uh, I forget who the, the individual was. Both claimed to be written by Mary Magdalene from different perspectives that purported this Gnostic heresy. Modern-day feminists have latched on to Mary Magdalene made her a sort of mythical goddess figure. It's just kind of crazy to think about all the misrepresentations and 
misunderstandings regarding Mary Magdalene. In truth, she was a trophy of God's grace. She had been rescued from demonic bondage, and she became a child of God and a loyal follower of Jesus Christ. Mary Magdalene is to be recognized and to be honored for her loyalty to Christ, for her deep love for the Lord, and for the fact that she is a child of God, a trophy of God's grace. There is no scriptural evidence that she was ever a prostitute. We know that her past had been dark, had been sinful, having been possessed by demons. We don't know what specifically led her into this demonic activity. But we know that demonic possession, demonic activity, is often associated with occultic type activities, idolatry, and even immorality. There are areas of the internet that no one belongs in, dark areas of the internet. Some of the things that are being revealed now that are coming out, I won't speak of behind the pulpit. I want to be discreet here. But occultic activity, demonic type activity, is often associated with perverted forms of immorality. They often go hand in hand. False teachers, you look at some of these cults, oftentimes there is a demonic element and there is a immoral sexual element. They often go hand in hand. We're not saying that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute, but there is a good possibility that Mary Magdalene was involved in some sort of immoral activity, some sort of adultery, uh, some sort of idolatry, some sort of occultic activity. We don't know for sure, but the point is that that somehow, in some way, led to her demonic possession. And the only way that she could be delivered from that was by the power of Christ. We're not given the specific account and all the details, but she was known as one who Christ had delivered from her dark, sinful past and from that demonic possession. And I don't know the background of everyone here. I know that there are people who have been in very deep, sinful, dark places in their past. Some of you may have been saved out of some bondages of immorality and some form of idolatry and maybe even some sort of occultic type of activity. The point is that God can save an individual. God can deliver an individual from the power of Satan, from the immorality, from the idolatry, from the occultic type of activities or occultic activities, from demon possession and demon influence. God can save. God can overcome. God can deliver an individual from that. As that person turns from their sin and turns to Christ in saving faith, repents of one's sin, God can deliver and God can restore and God can make whole again. And God can sanctify and God can cleanse and make a trophy of grace and make a loyal follower of himself who once was a slave of Satan and of darkness and demonic activity. Mary Magdalene is to be recognized and to be honored for her saving faith, 
for her loyal love for Christ, for being a child of God who faithfully followed Christ to the very end of his earthly life and was there even at the resurrection day and was met by Christ and was the first to hear the good news of Christ's resurrection. Can I take a few minutes as well this morning and address once again this wrong idea regarding biblical Christianity, that it is misogynist, that it is chauvinistic, that it is wrong toward women. No, Christianity revolutionized the treatment of women in a pagan world. The Romans did not respect women properly. Today we see pagan cultures such as the Taliban in Afghanistan that still horribly mistreat women. False religions from all around, even countries that are steeped in false religion, hold women in disrespect, don't treat them with dignity and with honor. Christianity changed all that. Jesus Christ, the women followed him down to his crucifixion. He was a man of compassion. He was a man of care. He was a man of concern. He was the God-man who loved his creation, who loved men and women. And biblical Christianity declares the truth regarding God's creative order for male and female, man and woman, husband and wife, father and mother, God ordained the home. God created male and female. Male and female created he them. And where the truth of God is rejected, women and children are often the greatest victims. We see this in the current LGBT movement. Men pretending to be women are taking women's place in athletics, trying to redefine or essentially eliminate God's creative order for male and female. It's disgusting. And our political administration celebrates it on the White House lawn. It's a perversion of God's moral order. And deserves to be called out. In many cases, the male body now is held as the highest standard of physical being. Female stereotypes are magnified for Male exploitation and sensual activity. It's disgusting. The Bible clearly speaks to God's creation of man and woman, of male and female. The Bible defines male and female as God's created design for human beings made in His image. And every person has dignity and worth as a living soul created in God's image. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Genesis 2 and verse number 7. Men and women are equal in their humanity and they're complementarian in their differences. The distinctions are part of God's creative order and design. It is biblical Christianity that raised women up to a status of equality in society. Pagan cultures, even to this day, still do not hold women in their proper place of dignity and respect. And the more our culture pushes God out and rejects the Bible, the more 
our culture becomes pagan, the worse women and children will be treated, as well as the elderly and the unborn. And the unborn include the children, of course. We're seeing that in our society. Christianity changed that. And Christianity continues to change that as people turn from their sin and turn to Christ and pattern their lives and order their lives according to God's truth, according to God's word. We see God's creative order and design lived out in its proper place, and we reap the benefits of that. But when we reject God's order, when we reject God's design, when we we reject God's moral order, then we reap the consequences of it. Even in this crucifixion passage, in this account, this crucifixion account, we see God speaking to the dignity and the worth of every individual. We see in this crucifixion account, in the trials and these perspectives, we see Christ, we see God's love for the entire world, and yet we see God's love for the individual. And we continue in this perspectives of the cross, these four Marys. But then also, we come down to two unexpected disciples. Two unexpected disciples. We drop down to verse number 38. And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him leave. He came, therefore, and took the body of Jesus. Verse number 39, And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night. That was John 3. And brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about an hundred pound weight. So now we shift to this perspective of these two unexpected disciples, Joseph. Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph was a secret disciple up to this point. Why? Because he was in a place of prominence, a place of power. His status in society was on the line if he revealed that he was a genuine disciple of Christ. I don't want to be overly negative of Joseph because he finally came forward and he revealed that he was a disciple of Jesus and he claimed the body of Jesus along with Nicodemus. But for a while, Joseph was a hidden, secret disciple. Because he was a member, most likely, of the Sanhedrin that had just been, in their majority vote, responsible for the murder of Jesus and turning Jesus over to Pilate. And part of that Jewish religious leadership that had cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Obviously, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, possibly others, were not a part of that. But Joseph had been a secret disciple. He had feared the Jews. He had not come forward. But John chapter 7 and verse 13, John 9 and verse 22, John 12 and verse 42 mentions that there were others among the religious leadership who became disciples of Jesus. So Joseph was probably in one of those groups and maybe had influenced some in those groups. He is mentioned in all four gospel accounts. So while he was a secret disciple for a while, and while he was not forward with his faith, we have to give him credit. He is a prominent figure here who finally publicly comes forward and 
demonstrates his faith, and the evidence of his faith is very clearly in the fact that he claims the body of Jesus. He goes to Pilate, and he claims and asks for permission to take away the body of Jesus. According to the Mosaic Law in the book of Deuteronomy, the bodies were not to be left on the cross on the Sabbath. We have the Sabbath day, Saturday. We understand that Jesus probably died around 3 o'clock on that Friday afternoon. The Passover and Sabbath, Saturday, were were coming at 6 p.m. that evening. And we know that Jesus was in the grave three days, three days, three nights. So Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So we have that. If Jesus died around 3 o'clock, then by 6 p.m. the bodies had to come down or there would be in violation of the Mosaic Law in Deuteronomy and having bodies hanging on the Sabbath and, of course, with it being Passover as well. It was important that those bodies be taken care of. Joseph stepped forward. Nicodemus stepped forward. Claimed the body of Jesus. Specifically, Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate. He was a wealthy man. He had a tomb. He had a place where the body could be laid in fulfillment of prophecy that Jesus would be buried in a borrowed tomb. It was Joseph's tomb. Joseph gave up his tomb. As a wealthy man, he had a place. He publicly claimed the body of Jesus. And trusting in God's divine protection, Joseph went forward with his plan. And then Nicodemus joins him. I love the story of Nicodemus. Here's a man who in John chapter 3, he comes to Jesus by night. And he admits, he said, the works that you do, Jesus, are the works of God. There's no other explanation for it, showing the reality that every person can see and understand And here is an intelligent, educated, religious man who knows the Old Testament, and he is saying to Jesus that night, the works that you do, the authority by which you speak, it could only be of God. But I have this one problem, Jesus. I am a rich man. I'm in the Sanhedrin. I have a big status. I have power. I have authority. I have influence. I know I'm interpreting the passage a little bit for us this morning. But isn't that often a barrier to people getting saved? And people will have a status in society. They will have a status in a social sphere. They will have a status among a peer group. And that will be their excuse for not trusting Christ. It happens around the world when people are literally excommunicated by their religious group. Or they are shunned by their family group when they trust Christ. Because there is such a hold by that religious group or by that family group because of their religion, because of their practices. And we know some individuals, we've heard testimonies, we've read the stories of individuals who have come out from those false religions or from those family groups, those peer groups that were unbelieving and they've trusted Christ and they finally said they would follow Jesus. And they would leave the world behind and they'll leave their family even. And Jesus even spoke to the fact that there would be some who would be saved who had to hate mother and father, brother and sister in order to come to Christ in saving faith. And that's what the gospel sometimes does. We have been very comfortable here in America where we get saved and we don't get excommunicated by our family. Some 
Churches, yes, will kick you out. And there are some cases in America where there are people who have left their church. And that's a tough, tough thing. But very few of us got saved and got cut off from our family or from our church. There, there are some exceptions to that. Nicodemus, we don't know when he got saved. But I believe Nicodemus got truly saved. And this is the evidence of his salvation. He came along with Joseph of Arimathea. They publicly claimed the body of Jesus. And they prepared his body for the burial. And I believe sometime between John 3, we know in John chapter 7, Nicodemus spoke up and he stood up for Jesus against the religious leaders who wanted to kill Jesus in John 7. So we see Nicodemus voicing some measure of his faith in John 7. And then by John 19, I believe Nicodemus is a truly born again man. And now publicly, he and Joseph of Arimathea will likely be kicked out of the Sanhedrin likely will lose their status in society, will likely lose their position because now they have publicly identified with Jesus. Nicodemus and Joseph prepare the body for burial. Notice in verse 39, and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes and about a hundred pound weight. They didn't have embalming back in those days. They didn't have the kinds of Uh, practices that we have where a a person literally can pass away and the funeral can be, I think, sometimes a week or ten days later. They didn't do that. It was typically uh, a person dies, and I think it was just in a matter of 24 to 72 hours. I I don't know the exact time frame, but it was in a short amount of time that that funeral, that burial took place. This was not with the linen that was used. This was not as it says in verse 40, they wound him in linen clothes. This was not some sort of mummification of Jesus, of his body. He wasn't taken and formed into a mummy like in Egypt in the days of Pharaohs. These claws were probably soaked in the spices. And there was a hundred pound weight of mixture of myrrh and aloes. These sweet smelling spices. These sweet smelling oils. Understanding in that day... One pound was about 14 ounces, as one commentator estimated from that day and the measurements of that time. That would make the mixture of myrrh and aloes about 87 and a half pounds, if I did my math right. Some commentators have estimated 75 pounds. Basing it on a 14 ounce, it would be about 87 and a half pounds. That's a lot of ointments. These were wealthy men, but can I point out just a little bit in that number, in that amount, though they were wealthy men, it also showed the measure of their respect, of their sacrifice, of their love, of their appreciation, of their desire in the best way they could, as late as they were, in a sense, in coming to the game. As late as they were, in a sense, in publicly identifying with Christ, I want to give them credit in that there was a great measure of pouring out of sacrifice in love and devotion as they claimed the body of Jesus and made sure he had a proper burial. And there are times where people come to Christ far later, or at least publicly identify, and there's so much compromise along the way, it's it's disappointing. I've watched 
many times through the years as men who claim to be preachers, pastors, evangelists, or people who claim to be just Christians. And I, I get disappointed when a superstar, I can think of one athlete in particular, early in his career, I actually can think of a couple. One's a race car driver who was my, my favorite race car driver. Early in their careers, oh, I love Jesus and speaking out for Jesus and giving credit to Christ. And then they, they got good. They got popular. They got famous. And all of a sudden, all the talk about Jesus and all the stand for what is right and all of the speaking up for the truth all just kind of went away. And then now they hardly ever talk about Jesus. Their lifestyle is now something far removed from what a good biblical Christ follower should be doing. I don't know what kind of compromises were along the way for Joseph and Nicodemus. Again, I don't want to dwell on that. They came to Christ. And whether you got saved at a young age or you got saved later in life or whether you are sitting here today and you are an unsaved person and you are struggling with identifying with Jesus, with confessing your sin, with turning from your wicked ways. Because you're afraid of what people are going to think, the people at work. Oh, you're going to be considered one of those people. You're going to be a Jesus person, a Jesus follower. You're going to be identified with that church. You're going to be identified with that old book. Whatever the criticisms are, and it's keeping you from coming to Christ. Come like a Joseph or a Nicodemus if you have to today. Come to him in saving faith. Let go of that power. Let go of that influence. Let go of all of that that is keeping you, that status, what people might think of you, and come to Christ. He calls out, as we have quoted from this pulpit over and over, come unto me all ye that are burdened, that are they're laden or heavy laden. Come unto me, Jesus says, and I will give you rest. Maybe we have to come to the point, as Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus did, where all of their power, all of their wealth, all of their influence, all of the things that they held so dear and so tight, they finally had to realize that those were actually bonds. It was actually bondage, like Paul said in Philippians chapter number 3. All those things that he counted worthy of his salvation, he finally had to come to the place where he realized that they were dung. And it was keeping him from Christ. And then he finally said, not having my own righteousness. And he speaks of that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. As we look at these perspectives of the cross, we see these women. We also see these two men. And it brings us right back again to the fact that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sin and for my sin. And as believers, we need to be renewed once again in our desire and our love for the Lord and appreciation and gratitude for our salvation that we might go forth from here and serve Him better and serve Him greater and love Him more. And if someone here is unsaved, give up all of the things that you hold so dear and come to Christ. 
and you will find that he truly satisfies, that he truly will meet all of your needs. The greatest need of which you have is forgiveness of your sin. May we be once again drawn to our Savior today as we close. Lord, we come to you this morning in gratitude and thanksgiving for saving these individuals. A Mary Magdalene who was caught in demon possession and all the darkness of her sin and her past, but you gloriously saved her. You saved a chosen woman by the name of Mary who saw her need for the Savior even though she gave birth to Jesus and his humanity. Yet at the cross, Lord, she sees her own son, Christ, dying for her sin. We see in Mary, the mother of James and John, maybe a little bit overbearing, maybe a little bit too protective. But Lord, even when she was rebuked, even when she and her sons were corrected, they remained faithful, they remained loyal, they remained obedient. And we thank you, Lord, for Joseph and for Nicodemus, who maybe came to Christ later in life. Maybe they struggled with all their influence and their status. But, Lord, they came. And they got saved. And we thank you for their testimony. Lord, help us to go out from here serving you better, loving you more. Lord, if there's someone here who's not right with you, Lord, may they get that taken care of today. If there's someone here who's unsaved, Lord, may today be the day that they repent of their sin and look to you in saving faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If we can look ahead there in our pews to the